Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. Two-thirds said like an hour or under. It was only 16% who said a day or more. And you'd, th- and you'd think, Jesus, this is such a huge decision. You'd think it would be a more deliberative one. This is Life of the Law. I'm Shannon Heffernan. Kathy Barber is a researcher who studies violent deaths and injuries. A number of years ago, she was helping develop a new system called the National Violent Death Reporting System. It was basically a way to gather information about homicides and suicides. And in the process of doing that, I would read through thousands of suicides, little thumbnail sketches of suicides in order to better understand the case. Um, And I was surprised by how many suicides involved um, some kind of triggering event on the same day as the suicide, like an argument or an arrest or something like that. Barbara was surprised because the common assumption is that suicide is deliberative, something people plan. But these little sketches showed people acting impulsively. Barbara got curious. She found some research on people who survived a nearly fatal suicide. They were asked how long it was between the time they decided to attempt suicide and the moment they tried it. 24% said under five minutes. Two-thirds said like an hour or under. It was only 16% who said a day or more. And you'd, th- and you'd think, Jesus, this is such a huge decision. You'd think it would be a more deliberative one. Barbara says these people may have suffered long battles with depression. But the decision to go through with a suicide is fast and passes quickly. And the reason this matters is if people could get through that tiny window of time and not complete a suicide, then they would have a chance. Many people never reattempt suicide, though that's a common assumption. So Barbara came to a conclusion that is so simple, it's surprising we don't talk about it more. Harmful things, easily available harmful things, are what matter in that tiny window. There's a huge difference across methods of suicide in how likely they are to actually kill. Um, Firearms are, are definitely at the top of the heap. When you try to kill yourself with a gun, you almost always die. By contrast, poisoning, for example, hardly ever works. Gun deaths add up. Of the 30,000 gun deaths in the U.S. last year, 20,000 were suicides. So public health researchers like Barber have started to think about guns in terms of something called means restriction. It's a strange-sounding phrase, means restriction, but where it, where it came from was in England, where Domestic gas, putting your head in the oven was a leading method of suicide. Back in in the 1960s, they started replacing the source of gas for home cooking and home heating with a non-toxic source. And suddenly, suicides in in Great Britain went down by a third. That's where we started realizing, oh, okay, means restriction actually can save lives. But of course, with guns in the U.S., means restriction is not so simple. Most of the gun laws currently under debate address homicide, not suicide. Laws that restrict the overall availability of guns in a home might curb suicides, but those laws are unlikely to ever be on the table. So Barber's approach is to provide crucial people with information and resources about firearm suicide. Her project, based at Harvard, is called Means Matters. 
She focuses on developing leadership with gun owners. For example, a project that equips gun shop owners in suicide intervention. But our nation's strong feelings about gun laws sometimes spill over to affect these public health approaches. Dr. Joseph O'Neill lives in Indiana. He used to work as a family doctor. As part of his regular checkup routine, he'd ask about general health and safety concerns. When I was talking about car seats, when I was talking about seatbelt use, uh, I oftentimes asked families if there was a firearm in the house. And several of my patients' families took exception to it. Some patients were so upset they switched doctors. But O'Neill didn't stop. He had had patients injured by firearms, and he didn't feel like he was doing his job if he didn't ask about it. O'Neill later went on to become part of the Indiana Violent Death Prevention Project. They trained clergy in suicide prevention. Most of the clergy said they had counseled a suicidal person before. More than a third said they had actually lost someone in their congregation to suicide. Clergy felt more empowered to say, oh, by the way, I know you feel this way. Is there a gun in the home? And if there is, would you be willing to get it out of the house? But O'Neill's group never got to follow up to see how well the project worked. Their funding, which was from a private foundation, ran out. Funding is really scarce for research on firearm injuries. The CDC, Centers for Disease Control, funds research on causes of death and injury. But since 1996, Congress, under pressure from the National Rifle Association, has restricted most CDC research on firearms. The Consumer Product Safety Commission, which researches and legally regulates most household products, doesn't oversee firearms. O'Neill says compared to kids' toys or vehicles, there just isn't the same oversight or information. Since 1975, we've reduced the number of infants killed in motor vehicle crashes by 75%. You know, I wish we could do that for firearm-related injuries. But for now, O'Neill says that the restrictions on funding make it really hard for him and others to develop the good kind of public health approaches that could get those kinds of results. It's sort of like going without a compass. We don't know where we've been. We don't know where we're going unless we have the data. O'Neill is passionate about addressing firearm suicides in his state. He says it can be really frustrating to see the need and not be able to provide any solutions. Harvard researcher Kathy Barber has faced similar issues and says that while homicides often get public attention, suicides are kept more quiet. I think that what looms so large in people's mind is the idea of the the thing that you can't control, the, the stranger who is trying to rob you on the street, um, whereas you, you, you feel like, well, I'm not going to commit suicide and, and my, family's, my family's not. My dad was a fun-loving guy. He had tons of friends. He loved Jimmy Buffett. Like the life of the party. And with, I guess, this kind of comes up with his death, but one of his hobbies was um, collecting guns and going to the shooting range. That was Lindsay Van Sickle. Van Sickle's dad shot himself in July of 2011. A few years earlier, her mother died in a traffic accident. Both deaths were sudden and difficult for her. But she says the feelings of being a suicide survivor are unique, unlike anything else. 
She remembers lying and saying her dad died of a heart attack just so she wouldn't have to explain what really happened. Because you don't know what to say. I mean, I've told people, yeah, well, he took his life, and they kind of give this shocked look where, at least if it was cancer, it's like you can, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, but what do you say when, oh, yeah, my dad shot himself? Van Sickle said her dad grew up hunting. He collected guns from World War II, and he was always very responsible, stressing safety, locking things properly. His cousins and friends, who were also gun hobbyists, were shocked that he'd used something he loved and respected so much to end his life. It's only now that anyone can imagine the gun is something that would end up hurting him. If you have a gun, even if it's for hunting or protection or whatever, there may come a time in your life that you may be depressed and then that may be a means to take your life. So yeah, there. I'm definitely more nervous and scared about guns now based on what my dad did to himself. For the most part, Van Sickle tries not to wonder about what could have gone differently. It's just too hard. But watching all the conversations about guns on the news, she does think about what place suicide has as we talk about guns and waits for the rest of us to ask that question too. For Life of the Law, I'm Shannon Heffernan. This episode of Life of the Law was produced by Julia Barton, Nancy Mullane, Caitlin Prest, and myself, Shannon Heffernan. Music by Kyle Kaplan, Todd McDonald, and Matthew Darr. The story was produced in collaboration with WBEZ's Front and Center series on guns. You can hear more of that series at wbez.org slash frontandcenter. Our web editor is Mary Atkins. Financial support comes from the Open Society Foundations, with special thanks to Thomas Hilbank. For more on this story and other stories about the law and the legal system, visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org. I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. (laughs) Uh, Think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. (laughs) Uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. (laughs) Eh, Don't worry about it. We're we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. (laughs) Oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America.